Crimson Tower Studios. Welcome to the Old World Podcast, the unofficial podcast for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and the original podcast to bring you both discussion and actual play in 4th edition. I'm one of your hosts, Lance, and tonight I'm not only joined by my buddy, my pal, the one who would most likely save me from the mouth of an erupting volcano, Matt, but I'm also joined by the one and only Deathbringer from below, the Lord of the Underdeep, Nolan. How are you gentlemen doing tonight? Or or I guess I should more accurately say this morning. I think you have a lot of confidence in me, Lance, to assume <laughs> that I would save you from a volcano. Oh, man, I, I assume you would, like, use your own weight to, like, throw me out of the mouth and sacrifice yourself. Ah. Right? I Yes. That <laughs> is how that would go. <laughs> What do you what you didn't realize is I was the one that threw you into the volcano. <laughs> it was me all along. <laughs> Long live the king. Long live the lord of the underdeep, master of volcanoes. We should start just adding a title for you, Nolan, every episode. Yeah, it's like Daenerys <laughs> like Targaryen in Game of Thrones. Yep. The unburnt, the breaker of chains. <laughs> uh, I'd be up for it. Nice. All right. Well, uh, well, what what gaming have you guys been up to of uh, of late? So one that I've wanted to talk about for a couple a couple episodes actually, but I haven't for whatever reason is a game called Arc Nova. It is a board game that I've played recently that I have really really enjoyed. Uh, in Arc Nova, you play <clears throat> as a essentially as like a zoo proprietor. So you are making a zoo that is going to house different animals while at the same time also funding conservation projects and partnering with zoos uh, from different countries and building universities and gaining sponsorships and all sorts of different stuff. And the, the core mechanic of the game I love, and it's not something that I've uh, really seen in many games. In this one, when it's your turn, you're going to take one action uh, and your action is one of five cards that you have in a row in front of you on the table. So each of the five cards has its own action and depending on where that card is in the row, right? So there's a row of like one, two, three, four, and five, depending on where that card is in the row, that is the strength of that action that you're going to take. So if I have a, a build uh, animal enclosure card in space four, when I take that action, uh, I do it at a strength of four, which lets me build, you know, a four space enclosure or two, two space enclosures, whatever. And then when you do that, you pick the card up, put it in the one space and everything else slides down. So the longer you wait in between taking actions, the more powerful that action becomes. And it's just, it's super neat. It's a really, it's quite heavy. I compared a lot to terraforming Mars in the sense that it, it has a lot of similarities to it in that you're f- funding and sponsoring projects in order in Terraform Mars to make it to Mars and then terraform the planet. And this one, obviously, to build a zoo 
Um, and all those things, but it's a, it's a super fun game. It's one that I, I will definitely see myself playing a lot. Interesting. What about you? Yeah, it's, got, uh, it's got a lot of, a lot of cool elements. One other thing I wanted to mention real quick, the new, uh, TV show that's set in the, a song of ice and fire universe, along with game of Thrones, it's called house of the dragon. Yep. I heard that song now. So but was it was a was it I know the you watched the first episode already was that any good? Yes. Yep. So this series takes place almost 200 years before the events of a Game of Thrones and it took about 15 minutes into the episode before I walked over to my game shelf and pulled my A Song of Ice and Fire <laughs> role-playing game core book off the shelf. <laughs> I am certain that I'm committed now because before I didn't get that book until after the series had ended and once that and game of thrones notoriously has a terrible ending to that series very rushed and it just didn't it didn't match show so all the people that i would play with kind of you know fell out of love i guess with that world the world of westeros and and everything so now that we're all collectively watching this other show that's also set it's interesting because it's very familiar. It's the same locations, the same uh, ruling families are. So many of them are mentioned, and you know you know some of the history going in. And it's it's so far it's really cool. And I think I can convince my friends to um, sit down for a game of a Song of Ice and Fire role playing. That's that's my goal. So I'll uh, I'll make sure to keep you guys in the know on how that goes. Yeah, I can't wait to hear. What about you, Lance? What have you been playing recently? Um, well, I did. I know we mentioned this a little bit at uh, in our Gen Con, Con episode, but uh, I haven't. I since I've recently moved and we're kind of recovering from that. Still, I haven't had an opportunity to really uh, uh, lock everything down as far as gaming. But I finally got my games on the shelf and prominently displayed on the top of my shelf is uh hero quest and that was <laughs> an excellent uh fun blast from the past you can tell from some of the the mechanics that it's an older game uh but it still played pretty well um i think uh i i've mentioned before but man that that first scenario is brutal <laughs> yeah it really is i almost feel like we could do a whole bonus episode that's just just hero quest. hero quest yeah yeah that first that first um mission that you do is so long yeah. and so so like, I, I you can tell that they really wanted that first one to be like eye-opening for the players right yeah like you use every single figure at least once so you you see all the enemies you use all of the terrain all of the furniture which again is neat and by the time we're done, you look at this board and it's this just magnificent looking dungeon. But I mean, it took hours to get through. And yeah, yeah, it definitely well, it, it sh- shows its age. Yeah. Well, and there's a newer there's a newer version. So this was a reprint right of the original version and they wanted to stay to the original. And, and I respect that. But there was a newer version called Warhammer Quest that was put out that was specifically to the Warhammer world. Um, and it's out of production now because, uh, you know, Games Workshop, 
you know, killed off the old world, you know, Age of Sigmar is here now. Now there's kind of like an Age of Sigmar version, which I really want the Warhammer Quest version, um, which is incredibly hard to find. So, hey, listeners, you got an extra copy, hit me up, Lance at OldWorldPodcast.com. I'm definitely interested. I want to get my hands on on a complete copy of that. Um, but I'm hopeful, I believe, that it has kind of updated rules, that mechanics are a little bit better. So, um, yeah. So, But having said all of that, I don't regret my purchase of HeroQuest at all. It, it is definitely one of those classics where... And and the plastic molds are so good on it. They're they're true to the original. The original had like a combination of cardboard and plastic. And I cannot wait to like. I know it seems silly, but to paint up some torture um, tables and bookshelves yeah. and stuff. Yeah, really. How often in our painting do we do like scale furniture and stuff? Yeah, that's one thing that <laughs> is really nice having it all in plastic. But it also. I feel like you lose a little bit of the fact that one of the nice things about having it on printed cardboard is that it's in full color to Mm -hmm. begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Even the fireplace is just a piece of cardboard that has what, like three or four folds in it. And then it nests down into this uh, brown uh, plastic base. It uh, it's interesting miniatures and plastic minis and all that stuff is great. Obviously I, I thoroughly enjoy utilizing that in games, but there's something that's kind of uh, elegant too. I think about using cardboard because you can get that that full color right out of the box. Absolutely. So Nolan, what have you been up to gaming wise? So I really haven't been doing much. I have played a little bit. I got back into it. Uh, Tiny Tina's Wonderland. It is a standalone game for the Borderlands series. Uh, basically, it's kind of think of like D and D Borderlands. Um, <laughs> it basically it's that it's fantasy with guns. They even kind of make a joke about that, where it's like, so, um, you know, like there's no guns no. in fantasy. Um, it's real good. Has the same kind of humor as normal Borderlands. Uh, my favorite character, Mister Torque, is back. And listeners, if you ever want to laugh, look up Tiny Tina's. Wonderland, Mr. Torque Ocean, and oh, you will yes. definite, definitely uh, get a good laugh at that part. Do, do I need to know anything about Borderlands to enjoy looking that I up? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. There is a, it is a little bit of a throwaway line from another, like a DLC, but no. Um, if you just watch it normally, you'll still get a good laugh from it. Yeah. So All right. I'll, I'll tell you this. So... One of the main aspects to the Borderlands series of games are the weapons, and every weapon has a specific manufacturer. So, like, all of the TDR weapons that you get, every single one that you get throughout the game, and it, the game is, like, boasts having gazillions of weapons because they, you know, how they randomly are generated. But every TDR weapon that you get, for example, instead of reloading it with a new clip, you just throw the weapon... And it either explodes or bounces around hitting enemies or it, you know, does other some other thing. Uh, So Torg is one of the weapon manufacturers and its spokesperson, like the owner of the company, is this like huge, totally like steroid ridden, like beast of a man, basically. And he's always yelling, think like 
Mr. Universe, comedy. Arnold Schwarzenegger, and yeah. Ro- what is it? It's a uh, Macho Man, Randy Savage. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, like fused together. And Savage, yes, and he's yelling all the time. He's constantly talking about explosions. He's constantly like playing air guitar and making guitar noises with his mouth. He's a he's one of the best returning characters or reoccurring characters rather. And the ocean scene that you described that you mentioned, Nolan, is absolutely hilarious one of my favorites in the game i always do look it up just whenever i need a laugh at work awesome man as much as we laud these borderline games i mean we need to reach out to them like <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'd be legit <laughs> i do want to play that rpg someday i think that'd I know, be I, a ton of fun i i've got to make that happen for us nolan for, for us. us yes I uh, I would I can't wait to you. I mean, you guys have talked about it for so long. Now you have it in your hands. It's got to happen. Yeah, it's got to happen. All right. It's well, a very, from what I can tell and what I've looked into it, it's it's a fairly rules light system, and it has super fun character creation, which is a hallmark, I think, of the whole Borderlands world. Like things are goofy yeah. and funny and you get a lot of that through that core book. I have it literally right now next to on my nightstand. I have the Borderlands <laughs> Bunkers of Badasses RPG book, and I have a Song of Ice and Fire role-playing RPG book, both sitting right there. Nice. So they're, they're very close. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we move on, I into uh, the news section, I'd first like to take a moment to thank some of our outstanding Patreon backers. Um, their generous donations help to make this show possible. Today, we would like to thank Marcus Voss. Marcus, thank you for being a patron of ours. It means the world to have uh, you and so many other folks uh, helping us make this show happen. Yes, thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. If you'd like to help buy us a Bugman's, be sure to hop on over to our Patreon page and support us. For only a couple dollars a month, you can help us continue to bring you discussion and actual play in the grim and gritty world of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Check us out at patreon.com slash oldworldpodcast. All right. So moving on to the announcement and news. This is a part of the show where we keep you up to date on Wolfrip and related news. Uh, so, Nolan, we have some new releases to talk about. Yes, we have. Uh, the Winds of Magic has been released. So, basically, everything magic-related and every War of Magic has its own little uh, career attached to it. So, very, a very good book for anybody that wants to get into this system to do. We also have Salisman, the City of Salt and Silver, another good supplement for another city book. This uh, follows the line of Middenland and Altdorf. But not, and that's not everything. We also have upcoming Lustria book. This had this was announced at Gen Con this year by Cubicle Seven. Um, very looking forward to doing this book. I want to check out. I hope we can. Maybe get some Wizardman careers or a little roll up stuff like that. That would be awesome. Mm. But so uh, really enjoy it. I don't think I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this yet, Nolan. But um, we did 
hear rumblings of potential skink careers that may that, end up in that book. I don't know that that's confirmed or anything, but um, so uh, I, I think they, they were pretty sure that we weren't going to end up with like Saurus warrior careers or anything, but okay. playable skinks are are a possibility. I'll take skinks. Kinks, yeah. uh, the skinks would be good and stuff like that. I mean, I wasn't expecting salons or anything, but <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> but so, uh, if I, you'd I was, like, to... I, I feel like, I'm very excited for the Lustria book because that's going to be the first one that we've got that is a a source book for an entire region as opposed to a specific town or a specific city. Like this, I I am excited to see what kind of precedent this sets because as we've seen, Cubicle 7 will make a source book and then use that as a template for future books of the same style. Mm-hmm. So this being a like a whole region-based source book, I'm really excited to see what uh what kind of stuff we're going to get in that well i and i don't know who did these show notes but they're absolutely terrible because they completely missed the sea of claws and (laughs) the sea of claws just released and so to your point matt um the sea of claws i always kind of considered it a regional source book just the way they described it because it like talks about the surrounding port cities how the empire like you know and all like You know, and it talks about the Sea of Claws and the areas surrounding. But they start off the book by clearly saying this is not a location source book. But they say it in the sense of like it's more general. And so I think maybe, maybe Sea of Claws is the template that Lustria may potentially follow. I don't know. Um, yeah, we did just get our hands on a copy of Sea of Claws. We've only just done the preliminary scroll through and it looks fantastic there's some ridiculous things in that book then we will certainly be covering that on the show in the hopefully near future yep and then i did want to call one more audible too for for uh wolf up here on discord we did hear from emmett that um archives of the empire three is actually scheduled to come out next after Sea of Claws, before Lustria. Now, wow. Oh, wow. Yep. That's huge. That's huge. So Dude. apparently, I, I, I don't know what, he did some sort of winky face or something and said they forgot to announce it. I, I don't know what that means. Um, but because you would have thought they would have, that would, Gen Con would have been the perfect place to, to drop that. But, I mean, Lustria has been something that people have been clamoring since first edition wanting it, right? So maybe... Oh, either way, I mean, hey, today's episode, we're talking about archives, but um, archives three, here's the thing. Nobody, to my knowledge, has any idea what's in that book. Hmm. So like we've already said, though, using archives one, which is one of our favorite books, archives two, which we're talking about today. I am. I'm interested in what three is going to be. Yes, exactly. Like, what are they going to bring us this this book today? you know, only has six sections in it, but boy, there's a lot packed in there. And if they're going to do that again for three, then we, that's something to be excited about. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, man, I don't even have a guess. Like, and so, (laughs) uh, what have we said? Somebody has been intercepting our, our pigeons, our spies are not reporting. (laughs) And, uh, I had, this was a complete surprise to me. Like Archive 3, I knew was like a name that was thrown around, but I didn't expect to see it um, 
potentially even this year. So the fact that we're getting it before Lustria. That's well, very exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you, you often mentioned that our spies aren't sending us information back. When we sent Heinrich to spy on Cubicle 7, we only sent him with two weeks worth of rations, and that was eight months ago. Do you think it's possible that he may have passed? Well, we did send him to Cubicle 7 on a ship leaving in the Sea of Claws, so... Boy. Yeah. Let's just say mistakes were made. Moving on. It will be docked from his pay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we have lots more news and information. Um, we have the bonus episode number 11, Gen Con 2022, um, where we talk all things Cubicle 7 talked about, including all the different lines. Though Nolan did mention that we missed uh, Soulbound <laughs> release. What was the Soulbound release we forgot to talk about, Nolan? It, the one you forgot to talk about, it was uh, Ofenkarn, City of the Wolf. Basically, it will be basically a supplement book, uh, by the way it sounds, or at least how Emmett described it. It will be talking about Ofenkarn, which is the Cursed City, the kind of that board game that Age of Sigmar is based on. Um, But the reason it's so big, or like, you know, like what's the big deal about it, is while there is archetypes and classes that are coming for it, it will heavily rely on uh, the Grim and Perilous rules. So, you know, listeners, if you've always wanted to get into Age of Sigmar, but don't maybe like the high fantasy and stuff like that of being a soulbound, Ulfenkarn uh, will be in your alley because the Grim and Perilous rules for Age of Sigmar does bring that deadly nature that Wolfrup uh, entails. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always, if Age of Sigmar was ever going to pull me into the miniature game, um, that, because it's kind of like Kill Team for fantasy in the underground crypt world of this city, right? Is that mm-hmm. an accurate statement, Nolan? For Ofenkarn? Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, it is run by uh, like a vampire and his kind of court. Of, like, mm. ghouls and zombies and all Jeez. that stuff. And, you know, the humans are cattle and just trying to survive. Nice. You can find all of this and more online at cubicle7games.com. All right. <laughs> so, on tonight's, uh, on tonight's show, we're going to review a book that we have been wanting to review for a long time. Archives of the Empire, Volume 2. During our own dark times, uh, with some other releases jumping ahead in front of the list, so to speak, this book unfortunately fell to the wayside for a bit. And tonight, or this morning, I should say, we correct that injustice. So, old worlders, be sure that your pantry is well stocked before the ogres arrive. And don't forget to look to the stars for guidance, for we are going to dive into Archives of the Empire 2 on today's episode of the Old World Podcast. Woot, woot. Woot, woot. So, Archives of the Empire 2, just like the Archives of the Empire 1, 
is kind of like a smattering of different subjects and things thrown together with some cool rules and stuff to go through. Um, but a big portion of Archives 2 has to do with ogres. We've been talking about ogres for a while. There's a lot of cool stuff. But we're going to kick off the book. The very first chapter of the book is Ogres of the Empire. Actually, I want to I want to make one quick comment before that. So the very first thing after the the um, the contents and the credits was a two page spread that is a letter written by Princess Isabella von Holzwig Schelitz Schleistein, who is a sister to the Emperor Karl Franz the first. And so this book is a collection of studies essentially that she has done and things that she is sending back for them to have on file essentially for the emperor to have so that he knows all of the things that are happening in these different areas and the things that she's discovered on her travels. She wrote the, uh, this same two page spread was also in uh, archives volume one. And this one is taking place almost exactly one year later. So it's just unlike the Imperial Zoo, which the whole the whole book was in this style where it was somebody recording their expeditions. And uh, so this information could be collected and then utilized by whoever. This is similar in that sense. But you the only time you really get any of this flavor is just in that first little bit. But it is a pretty fun read. It's interesting to read the one from uh, Archives 1 and then read the one from Archives 2. It's just a, a fun bit, a little bit of flavor that they throw in there right at the beginning. Good catch. I actually had forgotten about that, Matt. So Yeah. Well, I read, as I was prepping for this episode, I read through this one and was like, did they do this? The f- they had to have done this the first time. So <laughs> I went back, reread that, and then I assume that Will in Archives 3 will uh, we'll be able to see another letter being sent by the uh, noble princess. Yes. <laughs> Fascinating. That is actually pretty cool. The the noble princess who has been kept away at a hospice. Well, I guess we'll talk about that a, a little bit later. But to uh, for for as we get into the full chapter, the full first chapter, it's it's essentially a background on ogres of the empire. So this has if you're you don't know how ogres work in the empire in the old world or in Wolfrup. This gives you a good idea of like the history, a, bre- a basic understanding of like ogres, what they are, who they are, why they've been around. But I want to mention and note, this is very much about ogres of the empire, just like what it says. This does not go into like all the detail of the ogre kingdoms, um, which are in the mountains of Morn, far to the east. Um, their culture, the ogres come from there, and like their culture is somewhat built on that. Um, you know, especially with the religion of the Great Ma. But the focus here in this book is definitely ogres of the empire. So, having said that, um, it does go into several things that are important to ogres in this setting. Probably the biggest thing that you'll find, you know, when someone says, Well, describe Warhammer ogres to me. Well, the first thing is eating. They have an insatiable desire to eat food. They also have a big wanderlust, right? They just are, they're always looking for that next meal over the horizon, it seems like. And part of this is built into sort of like their, their society and everything, but a lot of it's the built into like the religion of the Great Maw, um, which the Great Maw is this like giant, endlessly hungry pit 
um, that uh, that they worship that uh, that is you know apparently a physical place they say back in the mountains of Morn. So it's it's fascinating to get a little bit of history, a little bit of background. There's even a timeline for Ogres of the Empire, which is nice in the same format that all the other timelines for, for the, the fourth edition have had. There's even some little things in here about like rules for hiring an ogre, like as a mm-hmm. hireling. It talks about the ogres and how they're especially suited for mercenaries, pit fighters, um, you know, all these, uh, you know, to give you just kind of how they work in the Empire. And, and this is something where, you know, it's we've talked about this before, but it kind of helps you understand, like, why is an ogre like in the city? Like if you're an alt dwarf and you see an ogre walking around, like that might be why, something. You'd... Why wouldn't people just run in fear? Right. <laughs> right. Especially when you look at some of the artwork on these, it seems like that should be a just a monster that you're fighting. But they do have a place where they fit in, which, like you said, one thing I wanted to mention about the hireling uh, little table on here. It's surprisingly cheap, actually, to hire an ogre. Um, even for a for a week, it would be six gold crowns to hire a mercenary. However, they are only loyal to you as long as food is available, which is uh, very fitting. Yeah, I think somewhere in here it talks about like the daily food requirement is like half a cow or something like that. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is not That's cheap no to feed them. No, it is not. So, which is why, and they'll eat like almost anything. So like, even like you get done with a battlefield and they'll be, you know, chomping on the bodies of their fallen enemies as they're going along. So yeah. And even in that same hireling table, if you hire a bodyguard, it says they're often good at detecting poisons and food, but tend to finish the dish anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's this also, this first chapter has several story hooks throughout. I want to say at least probably a half a dozen different story hooks. So always a good thing to see. Yeah. It's always a good day. Yeah. And honestly, the story hook thing is basically through the entire book. True. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's a lot of good ones up in the that first one. So lots of good information. But I think the chapter let 95% of us, as soon as we got this PDF uh, in front of us, turned immediately to the next chapter. Yep. Now with Archives Volume 2, you can now play as ogres. So, if you ever want to play as an ogre, roll the D100, and if you get a 98, you can now play as an ogre. And just remember, they're going to be a lot stronger than any of the other careers. They even have their own little table of the random uh, career and classes for ogres. Now, some of it is, uh, at least in my opinion, kind of funny. We have, you know, artisans and beggars and all that stuff. But, you know, an ogre isn't really going to be sitting down and, you know, being a Picasso and painting pictures and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, The archives of uh, the Empire has kind of broken down a little bit like, oh, you know, if you're uh, an artisan, you're maybe doing more of the heavy lifting and stuff like that, since ogres really don't make and manufacture their own stuff. Or at least they do, it's just not in the greatest uh, condition. 
It's not up to the dwarven standards. We'll say that. Yeah, yeah it's not even close. Right. I do like this. The this chapter starts out with, uh, and they've done this for every different uh, oh, species yeah. that you can play as, and that is having the opinions, which I feel like in this setting is even more useful because, again, it's understanding how different species and different people would see and interpret an ogre walking through town is really helpful if you don't already have that knowledge. And another thing I really like is that the opinions have both, uh, you know, Reichlander humans on ogres, but ogres on Reichlander humans (laughs) and each ogre section is written from the perspective of an ogre. So you can also kind of get an idea for their speech patterns and, kind of what they say, which if you're role-playing an ogre, I feel like that is extremely helpful. Yeah, actually, I was thinking the same thing, Matt. Uh, my, In fact, my favorite one is the ogres on Wood Elves. And yeah. just to give you an idea, I'll, I'll do my best chant, try to read this, but it's, what's that? Nah, you're thinking of pointy forest. You know the ones. You walk in looking for a bite, and suddenly you're covered in arrows. Ain't no elves in there, just angry trees. Still, what's a bit of pain when it comes to lunch, eh? Perfect. Yep, exactly. Like, just, just saw, man. <laughs> I do enjoy, like, when it, all the careers have different opinions of other races and stuff like that. But not only that, uh, with an ogre, you know, you're considered large. So they even gave you... New talents. So, Lars, you are much, um, you're much bigger than normal folks, and you will basically have the size difference rules. We have vices, which is a new psychology. So, you are consumed with the need to indulge in a particular vice, suffering from the vice psychology. Each time you take this talent, you develop a new vice. Examples you could take in alcohol, food, narcotics or pleasure this is uh, so this is what makes an ogre so interesting and mechanically is what i would say this is one of the number ones the vice talent that so ogres have vice food obviously (laughs) and so you you literally end up in a situation where you uh there's further rules that explain this more but it's basically like some you have to take a test when if you haven't indulged in your vice every so often and you can end up you know like failing that so where you have no control so like oh you walk into an inn and there's a whole feast laid out and your the ogre of the party hasn't eaten in two days um, you've managed to stop him from eating you, but now he fails that test. Mm, man, just think mm-hmm. of the fallout that's going to happen there. Oh, yeah. I actually, thinking back to one of the Star Wars campaigns I ran, one of the characters in my game had an obligation to um, addiction. He was addicted to Booster Blue. So <laughs> utilizing that in-game is really fun as a GM. Yeah. Yeah, because like it's it's real, right? I mean, we all have our own vices, oh, yeah. worse than others, but like, uh, it's just that's that's a really cool addition and something that can be utilized, you know, significantly outside of ogres for sure. I mean, 
just about anybody, you could add this in and, and have it make for some really fun role-playing opportunities. So, and, and can we talk for, for just a second on the attributes of an ogre? Like, so you're like, oh, you're saying, oh man, that vice talent, that could really make it not fun to play an ogre. Uh, like, cause all of a sudden I'm testing all the time to, and I might, you know, lose control. Well, oh, I, I would, I think it would make it really fun to be an ogre. Oh, I don't, I don't think, oh, it would be a fast. I agree. Yeah. I agree. But I know some people might disagree with that, but here's the offset is how about, what is it for toughness? 2d10 plus 35 for your yeah. starting you know, toughness. Strength, strength and toughness are both plus 35. But that's a potential of having a 55 starting. Gosh, that's. Yeah, I just doing the average, looking at the average of, you know, the roles that you would have. You could start with anywhere between 35 and 40 wounds as an ogre, as a as a starting character. <laughs> One of the areas where they suffer, though, is with initiative. Their initiative yep. is just 2d10. That's it. So Which if is, you got really unlucky and rolled a two, yeah, yeah that would I was be just rough. Like, what, uh, you legitimately could have a have a two as a as an attribute, which is rough. But I mean, it's a give and take, right? If you are this huge monster that has ridiculous strength and toughness, you are not going to have the the initiative to back it up necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so like all the rules for just like any other race or species selection or choice is in here. So like you have it's fascinating their talents you get to choose like they have uh they just automatically come with dirty fighting and you know a resistance to ingested poison like there's some there's just so yeah. many like it's just a it's such an interesting different type of character, right? Yeah. They also can pick between very resilient or very strong. That's another plus Jeez. five to your strength or toughness. So yeah. Yeah. Just another another step to get that up even higher. Specifically <laughs> toughness. If the, your wounds are calculated two times your toughness bonus, plus strength bonus, plus willpower bonus, all multiplied by two. So getting your toughness bonus especially, like getting that up to making sure that you start with your toughness bonus at 50 or more is going to mean you're a, an absolute tank. Right. Which like we said with initiative, if you're not too quick, you might need uh, to take a lot of punches before it's even your turn. Mm-hmm. So very resilient plus five to toughness. So if you rolled the best you could on toughness, it gives you a 55. If you choose very resilient, you just went to starting starting character of 60 toughness before you even do any uh, advances anywhere else so you could literally i mean it, depending on the career you choose if it has toughness as one of your starting you get five free advances there on top you could start with a 65 in toughness <laughs> which in, is ridiculous and for 125 well i guess it would be more it'd be like 150 ish plus experience so like let's say two to three sessions you can put another five toughness into that and in two to three sessions have a 70 toughness god yeah and that would put your wounds at four and that's the thing remember toughness yeah is also calculated into your wounds 
and that's going to skyrocket. Yep. Uh, it is worth noting they start with zero fate and three resilience, uh, and then only one extra point. So at most, you could have one fate uh, and in turn also one fortune. So that's that's one thing that would be kind of limiting as far as your uh, character build goes. Yeah. So I equate this. So some people will be like, oh, that's way too strong, way too many wounds and stuff. But there's there's this kind of like the elves, right? You take a look a stat block of an elf compared to a human, there's no contest, right? The elves just destroy it. Same thing with dwarves. Dwarves are superior to humans, but it's in the other categories that it's different, right? Where yep. the fate, resilience, um, and this is another example. And then I would argue vice. Vice is another, while it's fun, I agree it's fun, it's also objectively a, a negative trait, right? Right. Think about any cartoon you've ever seen where somebody breaks into a house with a dog and <laughs> they just pull a like two sausages out of their coat and throw it on the ground and the dog just eats the sausages. Tell me that you wouldn't do the same thing with an ogre. Like, <laughs> if you know you're going uh, yeah. into a battle with an ogre, you just are dragging behind a uh, you know, a cart full of butchered chickens and just roll the cart out there. The ogre is completely you know taken out of the equation and then you can go about your business that's that's just another little interesting thing you could throw in there but so i so instead just have a a cow with a name tag that says betsy and just push it around the corner just have it be a like hire a cow buy a cow is like a hireling yeah just ogre protection (laughs) love it Oh, that's a great that's a great idea. Someone in the old world starts a business that's ogre armor, a hundred percent effective, and then all they're doing is they're selling cows with signs on them that says ogre armor 3.0. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. They give them like a little hat. <laughs> because why not? A little hat. All right. We're far afield, gentlemen. So Why don't you, All Nolan, right, but, take us into some of the other interesting things in this chapter. There's so much. Uh, yep. Uh, right. But yeah, as we scroll down, we have different eye colors. There's charts for hair, element tables for like names. Which There's are super cool. Of, yeah. yeah which is real nice. That is a full page. It's two tables where you roll twice, roll D100 twice, and it gives you every single uh, different permutation that you'd have would be a different two-part name which is really cool nice uh nice naming table there for sure yeah it's similar to the elf naming table in the core book but bigger yes yeah yep plus you get clan names and title names so like you get it's it's really cool so sometimes especially we do all these uh career competitions so i'm making a lot of characters and I find with humans, I sometimes struggle like to find a name that just feels right. Um, but like with the ogre, man, I you could make twenty ogre characters, and it would never be a problem. Yes. Um, I also like how they have a little section on big names, um, yeah. which is basically to an ogre, it's a big old title and stuff like that. Long Strider, Death brawler Teeter, gut. yep, Brawler Guts. Um, <laughs> So, so cool. there are no in-game effects with it, 
However, um, if you have a big name, your GM might reward you with a plus 20 to intimidate or charm tests uh, to other ogres. Because to them, if you have a big name, that's, you know, awe-aspiring. That's like a big deal. Yeah, that you can earn a big name by spending or gaining a fate point, for example, or by completing a truly mighty feat. All right, but yeah, um, I'm sure everybody, we even have some example order characters, um, really enjoy this. Uh, one thing I did enjoy on here is when they have these little, uh, they've been doing it more and more since I think uh, Archives of Empires has come out. They have, like, the actual careers that the person is in, and they'll have, like, you know, uh, so we have uh, Nazalata Talltail, an ogre stevedore, but he was an ex-dockhand as well. Yeah. Um, me, that is real nice because, okay, there's an actual history to this character. It's not just, you know, I'm important in this part of the story. And then, you know, oops. I'm gone. Um, they also have uh, how many experience has been spent on this character, which also very good. I do like that as well. Yeah. I will say that this chapter on ogre characters is by far the most thorough when it comes to explaining not only how to make a character, but how to play this character. The mm -hmm. Bringing your ogre to life is a full page asking those standard questions that we're used to for doing uh, backstories. Like, where are you from? What is your family? Like, you know, why did you leave your home? And then even, even one step farther than that, there's a whole page dedicated to how to advance your ogre characters. So if you're a racketeer, for example, it, it tells you like how you would play that as an ogre. And I think in this circumstance, it is so helpful to have that. That without it, it, it again, just would make it a lot more difficult to know, like, what path you're going to take or mm -hmm. how an ogre would participate in this specific type of uh, career. They lay all that out for you. They give you tons of examples, tons of little notes, tons of lore ideas. And it, I found it to be extremely helpful. And it also makes me a little mad because, I mean, we could we could talk about gnomes. The fact that gnomes are just like this little side story and then never mentioned again. We didn't get breakdowns like this for them. So be it. That's how they're going to go with it. But for ogres, this this chapter is yeah. is all inclusive and it gives you absolutely everything you're going to need to get an ogre character started and start role playing right away. One thing you brought Definitely. up. One thing you brought up, Matt, that I wanted to mention, uh, kind of dig a little deeper on is you're right. Having like an explanation of like how to play a character. Uh, some people, I, I sometimes get frustrated because some people are like, Oh no, it's your own character. Character. Your characters are meant to be the exception, not the rule and all that. And I like, I agree. Yes. But most or a good number of people that I know that even know Warhammer don't really know much about ogres. And so they don't know where to start in order to yes. break the mold. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and so I think that is, that yeah, is key. Right? Yep, I agree. You so still it's, want it's your perfect to be your character all the way through. But right. Even having just the slightest bit of framework exactly to get you on a path is is extremely helpful. So, in my opinion, the next page you're going to talk about here, Nolan, is 
the most important page in this very important chapter. <laughs> you would say that, Lance. I would say that. And that's, uh, so I don't want to steal your thunder here, Nolan, but that's notes for the Game Master. Oh, okay, I was going to say, because I don't think it is if I know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, so, uh, I, if you don't mind, so here, yeah, I, I'll say this. So, as, as, a, as a GM for our group, or most of the time, right, Matt GMs too for our group a lot, but I will say, like... There, so when you look at news content that comes out as a GM, you'll eventually start to like get a little radar and little red flags will come up on different things depending on your players and what you could see coming into a campaign. And so with ogres, oh my gosh, there's so many red flags that are going up. Like, oh, this is super cool. Okay, that could be a problem. That could be a problem. Oh, they can't fit into normal buildings. That could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, they like, oh my gosh, they will totally destroy anything in combat I throw at them. That's a problem. Like, they're, you know, a starting ogre character could be incredibly more proficient in combat than someone with even a bunch of experience, depending on their career. So, how do you handle that? And I love this. They actually have a whole section. Are ogres overpowered? And they answer, yes. <laughs> Fundamentally yeah. and unapologetically, ogres are overpowered. And then they go and explain how you as a GM should handle this. Um, you know, one of the ideas we have, and we've actually talked um, about potentially doing a show on this after we've had a chance to actually get some experience with an ogre uh, in a game on the table. Um, but the reality is there you have to if you go in and you're unprepared, you could regret it. Um, but here's some notes on how to best handle those situations. Yeah, I think that this is uh, very crucial because it's one of those circumstances where as a GM, you have to know how to balance out that the fact that they are overpowered throwing, putting challenges in front of them that will, you know, make it to where they have to step out of their comfort zone and they have to figure out different solutions and the, the vice having that be a thing. And that's, that also puts a lot on the player too. Like you have to know that when that vice triggers your, it doesn't matter what your character wants to do. Your character is going to do what they need to do in that moment. So it is, we haven't done it yet, but our intent is to do a one shot with ogres in the near future. And I'm really excited to see how that goes. Yeah. Yep. And, and I'm, I'm at the point where I'll play it or GM it. I don't care. I just want to see, see what, man, how does it feel? (laughs) Yeah. They even talk in here about how to make the ogres size be a chance for comedy. Yeah. Yeah. You, he finally squeezes his way through the door of the tavern and walks in, goes to sit on a chair and the thing just flattens to the ground and he just sits on the ground. Like I can, I can see this happening and I can think of all sorts of funny, (laughs) you know, ways you can utilize that. And I think that's, that's something to keep in mind too, that you don't want to lose the, the feel for your game, right? In our actual play games, we tend to lean to the, the comedy and the humor and the silliness of <laughs> Warhammer and the ogre presents a lot of opportunities to keep that going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said the, the, one of the headings on the next page is an ogre walks into a bar. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yep. yeah so, 
But yeah, this section, like I said, it also does talk about, you know, GMs, let your players know, because ogres are really big, and you don't want them to feel excluded because, oh, we have to go into this person's manor while you're not going to be able to fit, so you got to wait outside. You know, if the person's comfortable with that, awesome. But let the care your player know, like, there are some limitations. Sure. And think about that, right? Like you have a whole party that's going into a manor for, to meet, you know, with some uh, noble and the ogre has to wait outside. Well, while the ogre's outside, he looks across the field and there's some sheep grazing in a field. (laughs) (laughs) It's an opportunity for a separated party to still have a ton of fun because when the rest of the party, not knowing what's happening outside, they come out and the ogre is sitting in this field, eating a sheep that he just killed. Like (laughs) that makes for a really fun uh really fun little scene so or 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 better yet like there's just a a carcass of a sheep and then you can clearly see the ogre hiding behind another sheep but it's you know he thinks he's hidden but he's not yes (laughs) yeah clean the bones yeah what is it like the little kids like if i can't see you you can't see me (laughs) right (laughs) um Alrighty, but uh, going down more into this, we have ogre melee weapons, ranged weapons, and black powder. Um, so all all, all just, I want to say, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, just another section or a little chart to say like, oh, these are kind of the weapons ogres are going to use. You know, they're not really going to be able to hold a normal sword that a human will be. So their their weapons are usually very big and large. Yeah, I think it's it's and vice versa in that sense, right? That an ogre couldn't normally use a crossbow, for example, because they're just too big to be able to manipulate it. But at the same time, I can't imagine many humans are going to be able to hold a big ogre club, for example. Oh, right? yeah, exactly. Well, I just want to point out, like, their, like, gun is our cannon. So, yeah. Like... <laughs> Yeah, which is like amazing. Yeah, it's like you know what do they call that? Like mobile artillery. Well, right. The ogre just picked up the howitzer and moves you somewhere else. Like there you go. Yeah, we don't need horses because the ogre ate them. Give them gut plates, and they can also double as uh, cavalry. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna say the only armor option that you have is a gut plate, which it is so fitting with the ogre, right? That they need mm-hmm. that at all cost. Yeah. In the uh, fantasy battles war game, um, the, uh, the ogre armies would like, essentially they would charge like, and they would cause damage like cavalry. So nice. Yeah. You stop like uh, a horde of eight, you know, ogres charging into your battle lines with sharpened gut crates and spikes on them. You yeah. know, you're not going to stop that train. Now we have Ogre Magic or. I wish I wish uh, Kyle was with us to talk about this because he spent so much time pouring over the magic section for ogres. Kyle was toying with uh, doing a character, an ogre character. Can you blame him? No, not at I all. I mean, no, it's, I couldn't these either. Spells are so cool. Yep. So, all right, gentlemen, what are your favorites? One spell each. What's your favorite? The Maw. <laughs> Good choice. 
But I've always been the type of person where it's like, I don't like debuffing enemies. I just want raw damage. Yep. The ground splits apart. Thousand gnashing teeth wait hungrily in the chasm. (laughs) Yeah. The the Maw is amazing. Honestly, the names of all of these are incredible. Bone Crusher, Bull Gorger, Brain Gobbler, which I think I'm going to pick as my favorite, where you devour the entire head, brains and all. Yeah. It's just... uh, it you gain fear too for anyone else that witnesses this it's and can we talk too really quickly about the art of that ogre butcher on that page oh that is really a fantastic piece yeah several of the art pieces in here and i don't know if this is one i think it might be are old pieces that came from the ogre kingdom's army book but they cool. are so good, and uh, this might be one of them. But and maybe it's new. I'm not sure. But I, uh, but I did want to point out. There's a lot. I mean, a lot of good artwork in here. But it just shows you the ogre. Like this isn't just some new thing. It's just like most of Warhammer. There's a storied history. Sure. Yeah, but, I've got no problem with reutilizing art mm-hmm. assets, especially when they are as fitting. Uh, and as excellent as this one is. Yep. And for the record, I think Brain Gobbler is also my favorite, Matt. I, it's so, I, I think it's the grossest one in here. <laughs> I, it's yeah, maybe the grossest. Another one I want to point out that honestly would be extremely useful in certain circumstances is Taste of Death. So oh, like consuming yeah. part of a corpse, you learn about when and how that creature died. There's actually a comic book that was turned into a role-playing game as well called Chew. Oh, I it's heard about, about that. A, yeah, it's, it's like a, a set in modern times, but it's about a detective who can the, has that, that power, essentially. He can taste something and then learn everything about it. So effectively, he goes to crime scenes, tastes the corpse, and then can learn how they died, who killed them. And it's a, it's a great a great comic. And uh, it just made me think of that when I saw this, but think about how useful that could potentially be. If you were doing like, or if you were part of an investigative adventure of some sort, mm-hmm. having that powers would be significant or, or evidence cleanup team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So that takes us to ogre specific careers. There's only three of them. But Only three, are, but yep. they are great. So right. we have the man, and surprise, surprise, only ogres can be these characters. So yep. I'm sorry to disappoint you all out there. So we have the man eater, the rhinox herder, and the ogre butcher. The ogre butcher being your spellcaster of the group. Yep. Um, honestly, uh, the man eaters are, they're the warriors of the kind of society, but they're the ones I think that they basically will go out that they, they're the ones you see mostly in the empire or Telia or the ones that are basically being mercenaries are man eaters. Yeah. Yep. Man eaters are, it's kind of like they're the most common ogre you probably see in the empire. Yeah. Yeah, the, yep. It's worth noting too that along with the Rhinox herder, we do get a half page 
um, breakdown of the animal Rhinox along with the stat blocks and traits and everything. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which is not something to sniff at. It is definitely a, a beast. If Yeah. It, it has the mount ability. And as a Rhinox herder, once you get up to tier three, um, at that point, one of the trapping required trappings is a Rhinox and a Rhinox skull gut plate, which is also fantastic. Right. Oh yeah. Boy, I, we haven't really done a whole lot with mounted travel or mounted combat, but no, that is something that is super appealing. Having being able to go into a battle either with a Rhinox or on a Rhinox is, I mean, that would give you a significant advantage. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yep. And uh, up in arms has all those new fancy new rules for mounted combat too. So, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Honestly, uh, picking between the three, I honestly, I think I would probably play an Ogre Butcher. Yeah. I think that would probably be the funnest. Yeah, It'd probably I go would... Butcher, Maneater, and then Herder. Yeah, because with a Rhinox Herder, it would take a while to get up to that point, right? Whereas with a Butcher, you've got, just by the second tier, you're into the lore of the Great Maw. And at that point, <sighs> all bets are off. Right. One of the downsides, though, is as a butcher, like you walk into town, you're generally going to be completely soaked in blood <laughs> and are going to be a much more intimidating and fearsome looking creature, which is another thing that I imagine would have to be, you know, role played out when you enter a, anywhere. That that's going to be more of a grisly visage that people aren't going to be super keen on having around. <laughs> Yeah, and oh, with, yeah. with gut magic, you have to like eat the, the like some crazy stuff, um, or mm-hmm. like take on wounds, right? Um, to cast spells, so it's a it's another just an interesting way that they are. Well, that is a big part. Like almost the first half of this book is on the ogre, um, ogres and ogre characters, but the next part is also incredibly interesting. And um, this is signs in the sky, star signs in astrology. This is star signs for character creation and kind of how they work. There's several pieces in here, but one thing I want to mention is we certainly, we had this in previous versions or editions of uh, Wolfrup where star signs and sometimes they were right up front. Um, So we didn't have that in fourth, but they added it here. I'm glad they did. There's a chart for you to roll on to figure out what your star sign is, right? A star sign like a constellation in the sky. And there's an effect. It has an effect on your character depending on what it is. And usually the effect is something like get plus two willpower but minus three dexterity or, you know, plus two strength and plus two willpower, minus three initiative, you know, whatever it might be. But there are also some that are like, Rise Cauldron, for example, is gain one level of the Iron Will talent and then get yeah. minus three agility. Mm. There's a bunch of these that are that are giving you talents. Yeah. Uh, there's 20 different star signs you can roll. You know, gain uh, one level of the luck talent, gain one level of impassioned zeal. My favorite, and this should be no surprise, if you roll uh, 96 to 100 on your star sign roll, you are of the witching star, which gives you the possibility to gain either sixth sense, second sight, petty magic, or even the witch talent, which is if we go all the way back to our witch career episode, (laughs) 
mm-hmm. which is a freaking cool. And I just, I love that this is just another way to help, you know, mold your, your character into being something extremely unique. Right. And it, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible how this can so I've done several character creations now, and since these rules have come out, I've used them for every character I've created. Same. Yep. And and I've never been sad about it. Like it's always created some sort of interesting slight change, and it all comes with a positive and a negative, right? So even getting that witch talent is minus five strength. It's not a small yeah. cost, right. right? Yeah. The no. only the only one of these that is all positive is if you roll the witching witchling star and then a one through three, you gain the sixth sense talent and nothing. There's no penalty on that. So, but all of the rest of them are usually plus four to a variety of skills and then minus three to one skill, like plus two to this, plus two to this, minus three to that. Right. Well, characteristics, right. Uh, yeah. uh, yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, and so one nice thing is, is they build this into the current character creation rules. So if you want to use these rules, if you rolled on this chart and accept the result, regardless of what it is, you get 25 bonus experience points during character creation, Um, which I'm a huge fan of this whole incentive to keep what you randomly do, because I think Mm -hmm. it forces people... Uh, or, you know, players to potentially expand what they originally thought their character would be and sometimes end up with way more interesting character concepts than what they mm-hmm. might default to. Mm-hmm. But if you really, if you still have, I want to do it this way, then you always have the option. You just don't get the bonus experience. You can just choose. Huge fan. So one thing I like is in this chapter two, Each of the different star signs, they actually give a picture of the constellation. Um, And I know it's not like a big deal, but it really makes it feel more real. Like if we like it could be an artwork or if I had a character, especially as a long term character, if I had any sort of like, I don't know, like just I could see me incorporating this somewhere like like the star sign of. Gunthus the ox into my shield or something like that (laughs) so just a cool Uh, thing and oh something else i want to mention every sign has a breakdown so it will give you like the the name but it also give you the classical name um it will give you when it's ascendant in the sky right so like i'm looking at the the limeners line right its classical name is veros it's ascendant in late winter or early spring. It gives you the calendar dates, right? Because you're assigned this sign at birth. It's like astrology, right? Like based on when you are born determines what star sign you're assigned. And it's supposed to impact you and, you know, affect you. Um, it's also associated gods. So that, like, go that's ahead. That's the key for me is the associated God. Definitely. Because again, I, I feel like I always talk about if you're not a big, if you don't already have a lot of Warhammer knowledge, but this is one of those circumstances where I feel like it is absolutely crucial to know more about gods. And the fact that this gives you like, when you roll that, you now have an associated God that like gives you a focus on where to go, what to read. Like if you're uh Wyman, the anchorite sign, the sign of enduring, 
that's associated with Manon. You can go read the one page thing about Manon and you already have some basis for how religion functions in Warhammer. I love that about this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, it also gives you like a paragraph describing, um, so like, for example, Matt, you just said, right. The, the Wyman of the anchor anchorite or whatever, like it talks about people born under the light of Weinman the Anchorite are patient and methodical, right? So like, and they give a little bit more detail on it. And I think it's really cool because it's like, like I said, it's sort of like astrology, but in Warhammer and keep in mind, like one of the multiple Warhammer moons is like <laughs> chaos. It's, it's weird stone. It's, it's, uh, it, it's magical. Like, Man, there could be something to this. It's not necessarily just hokum, if if you will. Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the 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 uh, so you get all the star signs. It breaks it down, and then it does talk about astrology in the empire, which I think is really interesting. Um, it talks about the celestial college, which their magic is about predicting like the future and chance and different stuff. This is uh, so this this would be a good read for Janet actually, with um, since she's part of the celestial college. Um, with her he- magic of heavens, but it gives a little information. And it's also how it applies to the different social classes, like the middle class, the lower class, you know, just to give you, again, some background on this and how it affects everyday life in the empire. Yeah, to be clear, this this chapter is not just star signs and how they affect your, your uh, character build. There is a lot more to this. Like you said, it talked, it breaks down all sorts of information about astrology, how it functions in the old world, the different <laughs> celestial mansions and their story hooks in here and other little um, like insets that are, that talk about um, the magisters and it's, there's a, definitely a lot in this chapter, a lot more than just what it might look like mm-hmm. at first glance. So there's an optional steps at the very end of this chapter and I admit the first time I read it, I didn't fully understand what they were going for here. But what these optional steps are is they have a way for you to use the signs to further develop or help inspire your character at creation. So there is one of the options is called determining an ascendant sign. And so this is the idea that you already rolled on the table and whatever you rolled, that is your true personality, right? Mm-hmm. So you're a cautious, blah, blah, whatever. But then there's the ascendant sign. This is like the mask that your character wears. So your true personality, like I, I would equate this to like, you might be a kind, loving soul that loves animals, but like the mask you put on is that you're this ruffian outlaw that will kill anyone that looks two ways at you, but no one knows you're secretly like a compassionate person, right? So this might be allowing you to give depth to your character by rolling a second one to like, what's your mask, basically. Sure. Mm-hmm. The other one, and this is the one that confused me, is caused, it's called Determining Celestial Mansons. Mansions. And what this is, there are a couple of different celestial mansons. Mansions. Geez, I can't say the word apparently. And um, so like the mansion of sense the mansion of trials etc and what these are is so like this one the mansion of sense says this rules how a person 
expresses their emotions. And so the idea here is you go, okay, so for the mansion of sense, let me roll on the chart again, find out what it says. And then in, in basically it says, interpret however you would like. And excuse me, they give a couple of examples, but like, for example, you know, they give a one example where this player rolls for their mansion of sense that it's ruled by the dancer. She is passionate, obsessive, and takes rejection poorly. So, you know, this kind of helped to, if that's how that person expresses their emotions, it might help you figure out how your character does so, or even it might Im impact what career you choose. Um, so this is all optional, and it's more about helping you as a player kind of figure out your character if you want to assign emotions and, like, how they handle stuff. Now, I don't know, guys. I, I really struggled with that little section on the Celestial Mansions. Is that how you guys understand it? Honestly, I couldn't. I didn't understand it really much at all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where you, you talked about how the – a lot of folks in the real world think that astrology is kind of, you know, backwards and not real, <laughs> but I almost feel like that could apply to this as well. It's just like another avenue for a player who's, who has like a big focus on astrology to just to give them something else to like contribute or talk about even. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's there, it's optional. Yeah. So yeah, very much optional. But in, unless you think that already the amount of awesomeness that's in this book. <laughs> we are not done. We are not done. No. So the next chapter is called A Touch of Magic, and this is all about magical items. So this chapter gives you a breakdown of how to make magical items, how to identify them if they've been found, the how to commission one to be made breakdown of like what it costs, how much time. Uh, and that, I mean, that's a, a huge section of this chapter, right? To begin with, I will say that identifying a magical artifact, there's never a time in my life that I will hear somebody talk about identifying an artifact. And I won't think of the greatest NPC in all of video gaming. And that is Deckard Kane from Diablo. <laughs> Because how many times did we go back and stop and talk to Deckard Kane and he tells us to stay a while and listen. And then he tells us all the cool stuff that we found. So that table actually in the book for identifying a magical artifact has it broken down based on success, success levels. So it's marginal success, success, impressive and astounding. And then the, the, uh, for successes. And then obviously those same ones for failures and depending on how successful you are at identifying it, it will potentially gain either quirks, which and and quirks are, uh, we'll get to that in a second. They are amazing, a really fun aspect of magical artifacts. But uh, being when you identify it, you kind of understand all the different quirks and things that it has. Once it's been made, you have a, a finished result table on here as well. This is, I mean, this is easily the most broken down way of constructing anything that I've seen in Warhammer so far that it's very not just much like, not just passing the you know trade test in order to make it but there's a lot of steps along the way the finished result table 
is again gives you that range from astounding success to astounding failure and depending on how well it turned out it's going to have different complications it'll have different qualities for example if you get an astounding success the item is considered a true work of art and is unbreakable if you have an impressive success uh, it's made without any complications you get to add an item quality of your choice on the other hand if you have a uh, astounding failure, the creation of the <laughs> artifact goes horribly wrong. It releases a powerful magical explosion resulting in a hit equal to a bomb. So, <laughs> and I just okay. love that. Just, yeah. nope. Yep. So you definitely want to be confident that you know what you're doing. That's like the, um, that's like the stereotypical explosion in the hut and the wizard walks out all soot covered and stuff. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, that didn't work. Let's yep. try again. Yep. So the quirks and curses table. This is one of my favorite parts to this whole chapter. This whole no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound like me. It and doesn't this, sound like honestly, you. This whole chapter is just, I mean, there are so many tables on this to roll. For the so, record, quirks and curses table is amazing. <laughs> yes, it is. It is excellent. So, you in the creation or identifying of a an item, you roll on the quirks and quirks and curses table depending on uh, how it was created. If it has flaws, there's a variety of reasons that you would add one of these to your item, but they get increasingly awesome as you go. The what I love about this too is that it's not necessarily a mechanical thing. Some of them are just just lore related and kind of funny. For example. If you roll a 41 to 45 on the quirks table, the artifact will only work after the wielder speaks a particular word. And that's not something that's going to be, you know, you're not going to have to like roll and pass a test to make that happen. It's just going to be something fun that's going to happen at the table. Think of it. I just sit here as a GM, like thinking about that, like, okay, so how do I have them find out what this word is potentially? Like, what kind of fun could that be? And... What is the word? Is the word something that if they say in public, it's not a good thing? Like, I love chaos or something, you know? Yeah, or it's just a common word. Like, (laughs) the word is ale, and you have a wand that will send out like a, you know, maybe it's just like a, a, just a mitzvah of ale. Or, yeah, and you say anything like, and like you said, if you give your, party your characters one of these items and don't tell them it triggers off a word and then just as they're role playing if they happen <laughs> to say that word you tell mm. them this thing happens but you don't tell them why right and that how much fun that would be to try to oh try my to goodness that. that would be amazing yep there's some items that uh for example the item relies on the power drawn from either sunlight or moonlight it only works in the day or night does not work indoors or underground um mm. The item has grotesque markings on it and will draw the attention of witch hunters. And this, like I said, they get, they get worse as you go. If you roll exactly 100, the source of power for the item is a captured spite trapped inside a prominent adornment or pommel. It's magically bound and once a day will make a hard lockpick test with a dexterity of 58. If it passes, the creature gains temporary control and essentially can cast up to three spells from the lore of life. Oh, my God. It specifically says in here that 
the spike chooses whatever spells most inconveniences or humiliates the bear, which is so good. Specifically, healing an opponent in combat. Like, I I just cannot get over how much fun it, you know, some of these different quirks can be. Yeah. Yeah. And but also devastating. Like you could also roll one that's not, you know, as funny necessarily. For example, a chunk of warp stone was used to create the artifact. It's a source of moderate corruption. Yeah. Like, and that's another thing. If you don't know that about the item when you have it, that's a problem. You'll you'll <laughs> probably figure it out after your GM asks for like if the third uh yes. you know, cool test or whatever. Yeah, maybe we should drop this. So <laughs> And it, so those are the quirks and curses. Those generally are, uh, on average, not good things to have. On the flip side of that, you have magical weapon qualities, which these all come with a like a series of keywords that go along with it, like of leaping silver wrath or entwined with fate of rigor wrath. Some of these are really neat. For example, uh, of rigor wrath. Light magic makes a paragon of this weapon's wielder. The wielder of such a melee weapon benefits from the following talents. Strike mighty blow, strike to injure, strike to stun. The wielder of a ranged weapon gains the benefit of the following talents. Fast shot, sharpshooter, and sniper. Oh my god. That is so good. Like, as anybody using a ranged weapon, gaining fast shot, sharpshooter, and sniper. If you don't already have those, that makes you mm. a monster in combat. Mm-hmm. Yup. So, there's there's a lot of fun ones in here. I don't want to ruin them all. I did notice that one of them, unless I'm misreading it, they have the same, the exact same result. So, uh, of Wolf's Wide Jaws, the most favored Ulrich and Warriors wield these weapons with wolf head pommels and other lupine motifs. This weapon has the damaging quality. Uh, and then of grizzly wounds, death enchantments ensure the wounds caused by this weapon are severe. This weapon has the damaging quality. So they're, they're different in theme, but they end up having the exact same result, which hmm. I, mean, I suppose is neither here nor there, but there's, um, there's some incredible ones. The, the Horfrost Blade, these rare and powerful weapons are sometimes created through painstaking rites undergone by the Ice Witches of Kislev. Um, if a hit from a weapon deals damage, it inflicts double the number of wounds plus four additional wounds. Jeez. Like, it's, there's, there's definitely... Imagine having, having Horfrost Blade on a Slayer Axe. Yeah. Yep. Jeez. I mean, what couldn't you just annihilate? I don't know. I mean, a dragon would be the only thing I could think of that could stand up to it. Another thing I love. So like when you think about magic weapons or like significant weapons or items, even in pop culture and things, they all have a story to it, right? There's a whole table on here about the magical weapons history. So, and there's another, I mean, there's a bunch of things that you can have on here. And again, these don't don't necessarily bring with it specific skills or or tests that you would do. But again, just another way to make that item more than just a, something that has these special powers. Like it has a story, um, and sometimes they do. For example, one of the history options on here is expertly forged. This weapon was made by a renowned magician artificer uh, who helped set up the colleges of magic. Choose a quality from the following list. Apply it to the weapon. Fine, durable, lightweight, practical. 
I, we've talked about this before, and we're definitely going to talk about it when we get to reviewing Up in Arms. Weapons in this game, I feel like, don't have that same kind of punch that they do in other games. That mm-hmm. you're using a hand weapon, you're using, you know, they might have a quality, but that doesn't, like, give it that much intrigue in the same way it would if it was, for example, one of these uh, magical items. So I, I can say this for sure, Lance. You better believe I'm going to be on you about dropping magical items for us in our actual play now because there's just there's so much fun stuff in here there's armor magical armor there's a whole table of qualities that your armor can have that'll do different things there are shield and shield qualities that they can get that are unique wands that are unique um rings and talismans rings are super cool too this is another thing that like takes me back to playing diablo when i was a kid like having sweet rings and amulets that give you special abilities like a ring for example you can get a spell ring that once a day you can cast a spell from the ring even if you don't have the you know the skills and talents that you would normally need to cast spells how cool is that mm-hmm. yeah aware does not need to make a language test determine the spell uh using the same method that you would for a scroll and then you can only use it once every 24 hours like I could go on and on. The final portion of this, the final thing are oddities, which are just magical artifacts that have some function. And there are some in here that are just are super cool. One of them I want to mention is, uh, is an oddity called the sand of flinging this fine, but abrasive substance is said to have made in end. It comes in small pouches containing enough sand for mm. four uses. The sand may be thrown in the same way as a dart. Does not inflict any damage, but it does, uh, if hit in the head, they suffer a blinded condition. So I ask you this how is that different from just sand? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's just sand at that point, right? Uh, yeah. But, uh, it's, but, but it's sparkly when, when you yes. do it. And it's special. It's special. So there, uh, there are, there's so much in this. There's so much in this chapter, so many fun tables to roll on so many things that will take any item that you come across, right? This isn't just magical weapons. You get, like I was saying before, armor rings, amulets, oddities, and just another way to add fun little things into your game. Yeah. And so Warhammer is not, a game of magical weapons and stuff. Um, it is not like there's not a, as a TS loves to tell us, there's not a plus a ton of plus one swords lying around, right? Their magical items are meant to be rare, are meant to be dangerous, are meant to be highly sought after and often don't do what you want them to do or expect them to do. And there are often side effects or consequences sometimes terrible and (laughs) uh that fits the warhammer theme so much so my one recommendation as a gm is be careful that you don't drop you know you're not uh hey you you know the your average bandit is not going to be carrying uh, i just unless it's crazy circumstances any sort of magical item right Right. Um, they they do need to be rare you know yeah it's like a one per campaign, you know, one per party type situation, I feel. And there's probably even circumstances where that would be too much. 
Yeah, and it, it depends too. I mean, if you have a wizard and they want to like get into the crafting aspect of it, there are rules here in the Imperial Zoo. There are rules for a bunch of magical like crafting of different things based on you know magical creature parts and stuff. So if your player wants to get into it, that's that's fine. I just mm-hmm. wanna I just wanna and again it's your game, right? If you want your Warhammer to be full of magic items or whatever, or maybe here's a crazy great idea for a campaign, right? Think about from the Imperial Zoo standpoint, right? You're a group of adventurers hired to go like find these animals. What if you're a group of adventurers whose entire job is you're the elite force they bring in to recover lost magical artifacts. You know, I mean, it works. Wasn't that what we essentially were doing in that, uh, avatar, the last airbender game that we played in. Yes, it was. We were returning, we were returning stolen artifacts from is what we were doing. Yeah. But I feel like that would be a, a great campaign idea. Yeah. Warhammer. You have some rich benefactor. That's like, I want to collect these things. And I'm going to pay you to go find them. Yeah. And that, that, that would give the players the opportunity to find these items and use them and ha- get all the, you know, the fun out of being able to uh, utilize some of these things. And then, but th- that also means they don't get to carry it forever. They have to return right. it and then they go on their next one. It gives a GM a way to control that too, right? Like, are you turning that in? Cause if not, that's a whole nother adventure right yeah <laughs> where now you're the one hunted by by this person so yep but and so there's a lot to do with it but just uh it's there's a you know from a general sense of the feel of warhammer i always want to now having said that there are some freaking awesome things in here and if you feel like if your players are asking i want magic items i want magic items i want magic items dude give it to them and i have a whole giant yes. table of quirks and curses to give along with it. Lance, I, I want magic items. I want magic items. <laughs> there you go. Uh, sounds to me like your players are interested in this. Like- um, so just don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that there aren't already multiple magic items in the party. <laughs> ah, see, that's, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All in all, it's a super fun chapter. Use it sparingly for sure. Definitely not something you want to go crazy with, but boy, what a what a great little thing to add in there, right? Have that having your players stumble across a talisman that mm-hmm. uh, you know, that they don't know what it does, but it has this power that keeps like having an effect on them as as they're adventuring. Yeah. Fun stuff. Chat chapters ten out of ten. I love it. Yep, and we are and so listeners old warriors we're not done we're an hour and a half into this episode and there's still a good chunk of stuff to talk about um so let's let's move on nolan you want to take us into the next uh chapter what are we looking at here this is the great hospice um basically it's just a giant hospital that has basically been taking care of like a bunch of uh people and patients like that uh a nunnery for shala for those that worship her it was started after the great war against chaos with imperial floods or imperial fun sorry um but 
in this chapter, basically, it basically goes over it. So it's basically just a little, uh, what do we call that? Like a, a section piece. You know, this is the gardens, the gr the guest house, staff building, stuff like that. We have a bunch of characters that are at the hospice, too. Yeah, some nice maps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, if I if I'm I don't think I'm wrong here yeah they do so in the book itself it has like maps that are labeled out and then in the back of the book they include the same maps without any labels on them so you can easily use this in your game um, mm -hmm. I want to point out so it's essentially a very well done location guide um, yes. for this hospice um, in the universe or in, in Warhammer this is outside of Altdorf, but there's no reason you couldn't pluck this out, change some names, and use it anywhere. Um, yep. I, I see this being a perfect location for your party is traveling. You know, you're going to have, it's going to be a six-week travel from this town to this town that you're going on, and one of your sessions is you come across this hospital. Do you want to go in and check it out? Do you want to see what's going on here? And then bring them in, get them interested and start throwing stuff at them. <laughs> yep. yep. And so one thing that I will say here is that just by reading this, there is, there are stories here. So Nolan and legitimate story hooks as well. Yeah. Yep. So Nolan was telling us about story. There's a ton of good story hooks in here, but like Matt, you mentioned the letter written by Isabella, the princess, right? Well, she is a patient here <laughs> and right. mm -hmm. there's a whole story and it's and i want to point out this story exists in this book but it's hinted at in other books um including i i'm not going to do any spoilers but let's just say that that this is an important character um the enemy within you may find more information too so it's just very very good background um and a lot of cool stuff so yeah the even the we've mentioned the the maps in this are, are really nice yeah but they are this is <laughs> the most detailed map i think i've seen of a building so it breaks down the hospice into four separate floors and every single floor has or every single room excuse me has a a letter that it's associated with it that gives you a full paragraph about what is significant about that room. So as far as the location goes, this is honestly about as detailed as you're ever going to get. And I think that's, that's really great. It makes for uh would make for a utilizing this in game. would be extremely fun, but yeah, very, I do enjoy these little things just like where there's a little bit of location. Here you go. Here's some background information. People, um, and go hog wild. All right. So that brings us to the last full chapter of the book and another one that is absolutely excellent uh, and a fun read. And this is the theater of war. But before so, you dive into this, man, I just want to say after I went and looked at the ogre player characters, this is the second place I went to immediately. Yeah. Understandable. Uh, Cause it's, it's really neat. So the theater of war is all about how to bring large scale combat into your games. And specifically it talks about how um, I'm just going to read right for the book. The following optional rules are intended to help GMs run large scale battles while still keeping the focus on the characters. And that 
that is the real key here that like, this isn't meant to be a Warhammer fantasy battle, you know, representation. It's not about like all -hmm. these little intricate moves. It's about what the players are doing while there is just mass chaos around them. I couldn't help but think of other battles that we've seen that are similar to this in pop culture, like the battle of Helm's deep or battle of the bastards from game of Thrones that, there are these important characters that you are constantly seeing and it's just complete bedlam everywhere around them. So uh, I do want to say the art on that first page for the theater of war is excellent. You uh, will recognize it from the cover of the electric counts card game. Yes. A nice usage of that. One of the, the main characteristics of how this works is a power level. So basically you have to determine the power of the two sides, two or more sides of a battle. So if they're depending on their size, the type of uh, enemies or people that make up the army, whether they have spellcasters, whether, whether they have elite units, are they mostly halflings or are they, uh, do they include large ogres and trolls? Do they have, are they badly equipped? Are they well-equipped? All of this, there's a table here that kind of helps you figure that out, what the overall power of, a, of the full army is. And then you are rolling tests uh, against those numbers to determine how the battle is shifting and the different things that are happening. I will say, when I first started reading about the power and battlefield strength, I got the slightest hint of midden ball, and that scared me, to <laughs> be honest. Like, considering those values that you're tracking for like in mid and ball, it's a team and B team in this, it's just your overall battlefield strength. I will say I, I only got that when I first started reading this. Um, once I got into a little bit more, this is completely different and this is, this is very well so, uh, thought out for sure. I had the same concern, um, but I've actually done some mock battles okay. and the rules are usable. Um <laughs> So hallelujah. I, yeah. So I will so I wanted to say a couple of things about this chart. Um the first is that I want to say is number 1. This chart is not intended to like be a okay, so I have 6 units of imperial spearmen and 7 units of clan rats and like you're not going to figure it out to that detail. What you got to do as a GM here is you got to grab, like, just get a general sense of what the enemy is so that you can compare the uh, general power. You're going to have to fudge it here sometimes, right? You know, um, and once you kind of have that figured out from a general sense, there is a battle that's going on. So, like, if your characters do nothing, this system will resolve as one ended up being the victor over the other and to like what extent, right? Is a great victory or not. But so what's important though, is that this is almost designed as there's this battle going on. There is, it's going to go on whether the the party does anything or not, there's going to be an end to it. Um, And this is kind of how you figure that out, but it's not super detailed. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be a way for you to have a consequence of doing nothing and a consequence for doing something and impacting the overall outcome. So it is a, I've done some mock battles with this. um, And again, limited because of um, 
some of the different like character stuff, obviously uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this. It could be, you could spend several sessions doing one battle and it could be a ton of fun, but yeah. this is, uh, I, I think the intent is, is to, and this is, I may be getting my head of myself a little bit here, but this whole chapter is very narrative. Yes. Like the yes. goal here is mm, not, totally. not to have this super granular. I'm moving these units here, these units here, these units here. It's supposed to be, you know, when you roll, when you make one of the uh, dramatic power tests, which I'll explain here in a second, that just determines like the sway of the battle. And I feel like this chapter would put an incredible amount of uh, pressure on a GM to be prepared. Like I imagine if I was running this for players, I would have five or six pages in a notebook, all detailed out, written out about like what happens when this, the tide swings this way or that way <laughs> and having things that can come up as that's going. Well, I, I would, I would only say that again, I'm going back to So one of the things that I did is I wish I had these rules for the the conclusion of season one. So we've recorded season one, so I don't want to talk too much about it, but there's a big battle. And I, I, I wish I would have had this instead of, because in one sense, sometime as a GM, you just want to see, you want to let the world play out. You don't even like, it's not important of who wins or doesn't win. If the characters aren't necessarily involved. Um, and, Sometimes it's good to have a consequence. The characters didn't get involved when they had the chance and they might've done something. They might've made it worse, but certainly there's this bad thing that happened that maybe they could have prevented. And so this is a really cool way to do it. I actually did one of my mock battles was a battle utilizing the situation that happened in my actual play just to see how it turned out. And it was really fun. It turned out very similar to the way I narrated it as a GM and it made me feel really good about about this as a tool. Um, and to your point, Matt, like where, yes, you can be that detailed and like, all right, if things are swinging this way or that way, or you could do it by the fly too. Sure. And, you know, just because things go really, really south and now a giant enters the battlefield or whatever for whatever reason – I mean, exactly. depending, and that that yeah. swings the power, right? That, yep, that exactly. Battlefield strength. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I mean, I don't want to say these things are t like amazing. I think it's really good, but it does require some work from the GM, and you cannot get into the mindset of super detailed this unit and that unit or whatever. You gotta be a little more nebulous with it. You can still kind of have the the orc army and the empire army and they have cannons and that, you know, you can get to that point, but you're not going to go down to like, well, that artillery battery has 17 cannons and you're yeah. going to you really, make yourself you really crazy. Cause it, I mean, even the, <laughs> the large scale battles that we've done, it can get out of hand fast. Yes. And if I've learned one thing. It's that breaking things down like that screeches your game to a halt and it's never how it never ends how you want it to. Right. It's I, so, it's so more often that it just gets slogged down in this determining tests and rolling and movement. And uh, it just that it goes mm -hmm. completely against the idea of this chapter, in my opinion. Yeah. And I actually I'm sorry, Nolan, go ahead. I was going to say it definitely does. Um, 
I'll say overall, I do like this stuff, but I looked at it more of like, um, like this is happening in the background, but we're going to zoom in on the characters and what are they doing? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is the, the whole idea here is that there's a battle happening, but you're still having individual characters making individual choices. So, but those obviously do have a large impact on, on the overall battle. Yeah. I had one other thing I wanted to comment too. Um, so these rules reminded me a little bit of the mass combat rules in star Wars, uh, the role-playing game by fantasy mm-hmm. flight. Uh, there's a couple places that they have those rules. Um, one of them is like ambush at Arda one. I remember that one specifically, but they, they had it in another, they had it in two places, but the What's concept of rebellion adventure, age of rebellion, right? rebellion adventure. Yep. And, but what it was is, um, it was very like, if you had like, oh, there's a Imperial walkers and you upgraded a check and you did this. And so like you had these checks, but they resolved like an entire phase of a battle in one die roll. And this is the exact same thing. How massive the difference is, how likely it is for one side or to get the upper hand on the other is very dependent on like who's involved in the quality of troops and all that. But at the end of the day, it's one die roll and you, you resolved a lot in one die roll. And so think of it this way. You're watching, uh, I just, since we're talking Star Wars, Star Wars, like I remember, um, let's say, uh, Return of the Jedi, big, huge space battle, right? Half of the time, what's going on in that space battle is just background, right? There's stuff. Yeah, there's a few important pieces, but at the end of the day, what we care about is Lando Calrissian, you know, flying yeah. in the Millennium Falcon. And, and, and Han down, Han mm-hmm. and Leia down on the, the planet, shutting off the shield generator. Exactly. And, yeah. Yes. And yeah. so in that case, I would probably have, I mean, it would be complicated and I would be really careful to do this right. But I would probably have, in using the Warhammer rules, two different battles, a ground battle and, and you know, a space battle. But that's narrative. Now, what Lando say, does. Quick, could you imagine trying to manage a large scale ground battle and space battle in a system that was more granular than what this is? Suggesting? Oh, no way. That would be an impossibility. No, but something the, I really would never want to even attempt, if I'm being right, honest. Right, but the beautiful part of this, right, and now let's take this back to Warhammer, is in this siege of the castle, um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff going on, but the characters got involved at this point, and so they won. That wall section is secure. What's going on in the other wall sections? I don't know. Make one single roll, and we go, oh, the enemy got a slight advantage. You know, maybe they're taking over the south wall now. Like yeah, they, there was a crack in the foundation of the wall that we didn't know or they yep. had a, a special troop type or a spellcaster that was able to do something right and at the end of the day it doesn't matter because it's background is there a consequence yeah if the players had mm-hmm. been at the south wall they probably would have stopped that from happening but maybe the north wall would have fallen then nobody knows yep. but at the end of the day the battle continues the players feel like there are consequences for them not being here or there or for failing at a task or succeeding at a task. And you as a GM don't spend time rolling buckets and buckets and buckets of dice and figuring yeah. out statistics for 
what is an orc versus a human? Like none of that matters. Just roll a single roll. That's what this yeah. does. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to talk about this forever, but I think it's really important, especially with our, our recent discussion about Minimal, Matt, right? Like where we didn't have, it was like both specific and nebulous. This doesn't have yeah. that problem. It's nebulous yeah. on purpose. And, a, and in my that opinion, works. it works. Yeah. So there are a couple other points I'm going to hit on for this chapter. There's a whole series of battle endeavors. Yeah. So these are things leading up to a battle that you can do. For example, scouting ahead to get um, information about what, what you're up against, mustering forces, inspiring speeches, sabotaging. And this is a, a one element, one aspect where if you have somebody that has a really strong leadership or if they have mm-hmm. some of the, uh, you know, skills and talents that are going to boost their leadership, that could be what changes, what turns the tide of a battle. So there's endeavors that lead up to it. We also have the battle itself is essentially broken down into five steps. So the first step is the lay of the land. This is where the GM just describes the overall scene of the battlefield, not super specific, but just overall how things are going. There are cinematic scenes where the character, that's where the characters will participate in rounds of combat or different tests. What are the individual characters doing in the overall battle? And obviously how is that going to affect the overall battle there? We do a dramatic power test, which is where each army rolls a test based on their power. um, And you'll reduce the opponents, whatever you succeed by, you then reduce your opponent's power by. That is kind of how, you know, think of your power essentially almost like hit points. Yeah. As mm-hmm. you're, as you're being whittled down, you know, you might have a terrible, and that's where just thinking through this is makes it so s- cinematic and so entertaining that you could be winning a battle handedly and then have a terrible role. Your opponent has a great role and now the tide has turned and it's, you know, there's just a lot that can happen there. And that comes back, Matt, to the lay of the land section. And that's where you as the the GM get to go, okay, the result of that was that that giant just kicked down that tower. Yeah. You know, or whatever. Or disabled your siege weapon. Yeah. Or any number of things. There is uh, after the power test, there's a regroup step. This is where you can heal wounds, um, any other tests that you would want to do like that, or, you know, drinking things that'll, that'll heal you up. Uh, and at that point you just rinse and repeat, you go back up to the lay of the land and then you go through this again. Um, it does break down like some of the different cinematic scenes. Do you want to charge in? Do you want to have somebody that you want to protect Do you want to hold a position? Do you want to just let arrows fly? All of that is broken down in here as well. And it gives you a lot of information for the GM on how to run cinematic scenes, different examples of how they work. It just, it, it really works. Yeah. And the advice even includes some stuff like, Hey, avoid excessive combat. Right. And I mean, so another thing, I'm sorry, I know I'm talking a lot about this, but I'm really passionate about this section of the book because I think it's really, really cool. Um, I think it's really Warhammer too. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, but one thing is, is 
is it's important and try as a GM encourage your players if they don't automatically do this. Hopefully, most groups are pretty good and and players will contribute. But like this should be a con- contribute everyone contributing. To me, I always think about it like um, I keep going back to Star Wars because there's a similar system and I've had experience with it. But like when you roll that triumph the GM isn't the only person coming up with ideas on what that means. Everyone at the table is pitching ideas and collaboratively together. You guys are coming up with a cool, because eventually somebody is going to say, Oh, what if that success there means that the, the Skaven managed to find a, a way through the sewer and now they're inside the city. Holy crap. That sounds awesome. Everybody's on board. Now that's what happened. You know? Yep. And then everybody contribute to back to the city. We have to f- fend off these Skaven and mm-hmm. your party that was split up is now regrouped or. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and it all comes naturally and it doesn't just have to be the GM calling what happens. And I right. think that when you all get done, whether the city has fallen and a character died or whether you're victorious and have killed and beheaded the enemy general, it will feel natural and not forced, not railroaded because there are consequences for failure or inaction. Right. Yep. I, uh, I have nothing but good things to say about this chapter. And that's, I say that after we've already gone through (laughs) how awesome ogres are, how cool the star sign section is the incredible magic item section. And now this, and the great hospice is a great section too. It's maybe not one that like you would utilize as often, but as far as a breakdown of a location, I'm not sure I could think of a better example. Oh, it's of that. great. So definitely you this, this war, uh, you know, large scale battles section. I mean, this, this book is, is absolutely top notch. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that there's a whole section of the end here all about siege weapons and weapons of war, ballistas, battering rams, you know, rocket batteries, cannons, trebuchets. Environmental factors table. Yes, there's a whole (laughs) table there at the end where there's different environmental factors that can come in. A toxic cloud comes overhead. A corrupting influence is, you know, the field is tainted by chaos and a fire breaks out. Oh, it just, it, it is so good. And the piece of art on page 91 is absolutely perfect. I love it so much. I assume that's a warrior priest of some sort. Yes. That's a warrior priest of Sigmar. That may be one of my favorite pieces that has come out of Wolfrup. So, so Matt, um, you perhaps of all the people that have been involved, may be the newest person to, like Warhammer lore where you have the current level of knowledge, which I would consider pretty high. But when we started the podcast, I know it was somewhat newer to you. Um, Now that you are where you are, I would ask you, do you feel like this art piece encapsulates what it means to say this is Warhammer? Oh, for sure. I mean, in the middle of a battle, like a warrior priestess, grim and gritty, half already dying man it's such a great piece of art it hits all the warhammer things right yeah like a clear battle in the background it's got the skulls all over the place it has the purity seals Uh, the the woman is actually wielding a warhammer like yeah it it's an excellent piece yeah 
you thought we were done. We weren't. There's an appendix. One more page. And it's psychological disorders. And really quickly, how about some cool new psychological issues that your characters have to deal with? I know a big complaint that I've heard from some folks that really miss second edition and first edition um, is the insanity and how they feel like the corruption and stuff doesn't quite do the same thing. And I understand where they're coming from because it is different mechanics. But this kind of brings some of that back. Um, there's a fear of the dark, animosity and hatred, trauma. Um, and that's just kind of how to fit some of the psychological disorders into your game. It's a pretty quick, small appendix. Um, but I think it does a good job of just giving you some ideas, how to handle it. And then they do give you an endeavor here, recuperation, which is a way on how to kind of work through some of that too, if it's in your game. So these would be kind of like what I would say some optional rules if you want to add that in. Yeah. it uh, Back in the uh, war, theater of war chapter, there is a sidebar called the horrors of war. Oh, and it yeah. It talks about how winning or losing a battle can bring on different psychological traits that your character wouldn't have had. Otherwise mm -hmm. you might gain a fear or a terror uh, condition. You might actually gain animosity or hatred talent so that you, yeah, you know, you lose this big battle. You, you now have this, this rage towards a specific group. Um, exactly. There's, yeah. only, there's only one page, but there's quite a bit of, of uh, useful stuff, even on that one page. Gentlemen, I, so more old worlders, I guess I would say, I, I think you know how our final thoughts are going to go here, <laughs> but <laughs> let's do it anyway. Nolan, you want to kick us off? Overall, Archives 2 is so much better, in my opinion, than the first Archives. I even had to go back and look at Archives 1 to see, like, okay, what did we get in Archives 1? Um you know, we did get more halfling stuff. We did get uh, a couple new careers and stuff like that. This is honestly what I wanted all. I wanted mass combat and how to write that. We have ogres. This is definitely a book that I really want. And as we said in our upcoming news episode, we're getting Archives 3. I know. Oh, what? Like, what? could be left like i'm i honestly am excited for that because you know we had archives one great this is awesome you know i'm looking forward to see what three has you know what exactly are we gonna get yeah, but how are we gonna build on this uh -huh, sure. just do that but just taking this this is a great book and definitely gms and even players alike you need to get this it is a really good book, and Cubicle 7 really did an outstanding job. I'm going to agree with everything you just said. I feel like this is one of the books that is a, is a must-buy because of how much content that it adds and can add to your games. Um, and I feel like we this is another great example of the fact that The Enemy Within has completed we are now getting more of these type of books that are just excellent. I feel like we were, we got some of this, some of the kind of stuff that we have in these books from the uh, companions, but definitely not to the same level. Uh, this book is fantastic. I feel like there's so much stuff in here that I want to utilize in my games. 
they absolutely knocked it out of the park. I've got I've got no complaints on this book. I mean, I don't think I've ever disagreed with you guys in a final thoughts section, but um, I will say uh, I agree. I will I will add, Nolan, you made the point of comparing this against Archives 1. And, man, it's tough because I think both books are doing what they're intending to do. They're taking things or subjects or rule sets that aren't necessarily fit in another book like for or they're not big enough for a full book and they just like let's throw them together into an archives book so that we can get it um so like and i think about archives one with the the lorian forest and everything we need to know about what else and give us you know information there about you know the dwarf hold you know you got all this good information and some careers and all the breakdown of the mootland and halflings that was kind of like the halfling book um, and so that was all really good. I, I think to, to clarify that, um, I think this book is also better than archives one, but that should don't interpret that as me saying that archives one is bad in any way. I think, archives no, not at all. Even for me, herb book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this, so, <laughs> well, and it's funny that you say that because I said all of what I just said in order to say archives one was amazing. But if you said, Lance, pick right now, you can only have one. I want two. Two all the way. Yeah, two. It just, it gives me so much more that I can use every time. Think about it. Star signs, I'm going to use with every character creation I do probably forever, right? Um, You know, the the great hospice is just a location stuff I can set. I have... um, even if I never use ogre characters, I could use ogres as NPCs and and, and vice. Mm-hmm. Even just that, like that's a that's a great addition. Yeah, and for me, I'm just such a huge fan of the old Warhammer battle game. I feel like the mass combat rules allows me to have a flavor of that in my role playing game and still have it about the characters. Uh, this book is great. Um, I see. Like if you're a GM and you're running a campaign, you're doing anything more than a one shot in this system, I highly recommend you pick up um, Archives 2, especially if you're considering Ogres or you're considering Mass Combat in any way. Those two reasons, either one of those alone is a reason to get this book. 10 out of 10, or as Nolan would say, it's in my top 10. It's in my top 10. (laughs) I literally wrote... 10 out of 10 on our show notes. There you go. That's how I feel about it. So boy. And I, I just, I'm so excited because this is just the beginning of, well, it's not the beginning, but this is, we are, we have books lined up that we are going to be reviewing and they are all, I'm very excited about all of them. We've got winds of magic. We've got up in arms, Salzman, sea of claws, archives three. I'm scared. Oh, can I just say I'm scared for archives three? Like archives two is set the bar so high. Like I'm yeah. just I'm afraid that archives three isn't gonna meet it, and, and it could still be a great book. But like archives two, like I said, the bar's so high. The, we didn't, yeah. and all of this we just talked about. I forgot to talk about all the magic item stuff that's in there. Like, come yeah. on, <laughs> there's so much. Yeah, we. we- Maybe should temper our expectations a little bit. Yeah. I mean, thinking back to like how geeked we were about the uh, um, 
power behind the throne and yeah like the power behind the throne companion i was like oh okay this is good but moving on (laughs) i i don't feel like that's going to be the case with archives three um i'm so excited and i also just want to mention too i love the cover art for these books they both show like a a desk that has stuff laid out on it and i think having it's just one of those collector things that i'm sure we all feel having a series of books that are on our shelf that are archives of the empire one through six yeah how great is that going to look on a shelf (laughs) okay so now this makes me wonder based on you tying together that these were both written by the princess i wonder if this is her desk as she's writing the particular piece i I assumed that okay just, just because the way that they they um are portraying all of it but very uh, good stuff would recommend all right well old worlders that's the end of our show tonight or today i guess i should say it's still day <laughs> our next discussion episode uh man we have so many in the docket but i'm fairly certain that uh up in arms is very near the top i'm pretty sure that might be our next discussion I so. or i think if we're, if we're gonna try to knock these out yeah in order of release so we jumped the gun a little bit on imperial zoo obviously we wanted to get ts on and that was a great episode if you haven't already listened to it yeah and and it's possible we'll have a career episode or two spliced throughout but i think our next book review for sure will be up in arms yeah yeah so i agree because we got to get to see a clause as fast as we can yeah man (laughs) i haven't even had a chance to really digest that yet and it looks so good anyway Stay tuned. It's coming. So, Intrepid listeners, keep in touch. Let us know your questions, feedback, and even more show topics. You can contact us multiple ways by checking out our website at www.oldworldpodcast.com, Twitter at Old World Podcast, and Facebook at Facebook slash Old World Podcast. And while you're checking us out on the various social interwebs, be sure to hop on over to our Patreon page and support us. If you like what we're doing and want to help out, become a patron. For only a couple dollars a month, you can help support the show and get some cool rewards, too. Check us out at patreon.com slash oldworldpodcast. Also, let us know what you think. Visit iTunes or your preferred podcast service and rate us. Every review helps us reach even more Warhammer fans. And don't forget, check out our shop at oldworldpodcast.com slash shop and buy some killer Old World Podcast merchandise. All right. Well, this is Lance saying... Good night, and may every ogre you meet be already full. (laughs) This is Matt reminding the butcher to kill another cow because the new folks in town have an ogre with them. (laughs) This is Nolan saying, I'm going to indulge in my vice and stuff some cheese stuffed pizza into my gullet. (laughs) This podcast and related website are completely unofficial and are not endorsed by Games Workshop Limited or Cubicle 7 Entertainment. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. GW Games Workshop, Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and all associated logos, illustrations, images, names, creatures, races, vehicles, locations, weapons, characters, and the distinctive likenesses thereof are registered trademarks of Games Workshop Limited, Cubicle 7 Entertainment, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio or video information, is the intellectual property of the Old World Podcast and Crimson Tower Studios, LLC.